when you were uh, the Green Party of Canada's foreign affairs critic, uh, you did not condemn the, the coup against Evo Morales, an indigenous elected leader in Bolivia. I was wondering, how do you justify talking about letting indigenous communities take their own decisions and decolonization and then endorse colonialism or imperialism in another country? Thank you. Thanks. That's a lot of very incendiary language there. Welcome to the show. This is the Rational National Podcast. I'm your host, David Dole, joined here by Mary. How's it going? Pretty good. So today we are discussing the failure of eco-capitalism and exposing the Green Party's new leader and what this means for the Canadian left. Yes, the Green Party picked a new leader on Saturday and uh, it was a disappointing result, to say the least. So the new leader's name is Annamie Paul. We'll, we'll be looking at her uh, policy positions and if she is actually even on the left. Uh, yeah, so I think there was this big division between the eco-capitalists versus the eco-socialists. And she was specifically asked about the left and eco-socialism. And this was her response. First question I just asked you is, um, you know, a number of people in this election, Paul, mm -hmm. uh, have supported eco-socialist candidates. How are you going to respond to that loud call within this election that people want to see strong uh, leftist policies in your party now? If people want to see strong progressive politics, I'm sorry, politique, c'est français, policies in our party, then they just have to look at our electoral program from 2019, okay? We were talking about a guaranteed livable income while it was still just a twinkle in the eye of the other parties. We've been talking about universal pharmacare for years. We have been talking about a just transition for workers in the extractive industries. We've been talking about universal, um, universal post-secondary education. We've been talking about a safe supply of drugs in order to combat the opioid epidemic. We have consistently been at the forefront of progressive policies in this country. And I will tell you for my part, and I believe that most Canadians would feel the same way, that if even even a fraction of the policies that we had been we have been fighting for for all these years had in fact been implemented before this pandemic hit we would have been in a very different situation we would have been much more resilient and so i say to any progressive person who is looking for the most progressive party in canadian politics that is the green party of canada yeah, notice how uh, she totally avoided using the terms eco-socialist or like yeah. leftist. Mm -hmm. um, and she refers to the party platform in 2019. Um, she describes herself as progressive. Um, I feel like this term is not really a good indicator of how left you are. Obviously, we have the progressive conservatives. So yeah, like, and what also, does that even mean? Also, just to like to reference the, the platform from, from 2019... I mean, we're talking about a Green Party that only has three seats. So you would think whatever strategy that is, it has failed. And maybe it's time to take up a new vision. But as we're going to go through here, uh, this is essentially the same old thing. And we're not going to see much change from the Green Party. And I'm going to guess uh, not much success either. 
Yeah, we don't really have a clear idea of what a Green Party led by Paul actually looks like in 2020, 2021 and beyond. Um, We also don't really know where she stands on key policy issues um, based on like the debates I watched. Um, She was so incapable of taking clear positions um, on any of the debates. Um, So so what I did was I went to her website. I wanted to check specifically the policy tabs because that's really what it boils down to Um, and she does this thing where she uses or at least her website uses neoliberal code speak wrapped in woke language so um, kind of like the you know you you know how she like flipped to like progressivism Um, more of that is in sort of her like uh, policy description so for instance one of her key policies is titled overcoming Canada's democratic deficit so i don't know about you i've never heard the term deficit to be used to describe anything other than like public expenditure used by conservatives in like a negative way to cut Mm -hmm. social programs yeah um like i i don't know why you would use that term it Um, seems like a blatant attempt to go after the more conservative-minded liberal voter uh the only ones that even discuss deficits but even then there really is this fantasy in canadian media that the average Canadian is thinking about the deficit. Like, right now, we're both reading uh, Stephanie Kelton's The uh, Deficit Myth, and it just kind of, it puts a giant hole into all of this, into the entire idea around deficits to begin with. But to then apply that language to other sorts of policies, to to uh, to democracy, uh, it, it just, clearly, it is an attempt here to uh, continue trying to go after the more conservative voter that up to this point the the Green Party has failed to attract. Yeah, and just to be as generous as possible um, when it comes to this, um, like when I read through like the whole, you know, details of that tab, it seems to get, seems to be about getting uh, more engagement going on. So when she's like, you know, we want to uh, overcome the democratic deficit, it's supposed to get more in- engagement, but it's just such an odd term. It's more like a neoliberal dog whistle. And uh, yeah, it just to me as a leftist uh, really is, is a uh, turn. It's very off putting. Um, and then uh, really like what what the Green Party is known for is sort of like their green policy. So I really wanted to look into this and I sort of, you know, just dug a little bit deeper and I read the Green Economy tab. It's up available. It's for everyone to read. Um, so it first starts off with paragraphs full of the existential threat of climate change, which, uh, you know, we pretty much all are aware of as Green Party voters or someone potentially interested in the Green Party. But these were her three core policies, and I want to go through them and um, what it actually means. And then I'm going to go a little bit further into, I guess, you know, the problems of eco-capitalism. But uh, so the first um, main policy position she's taking is uh, reinforcing our national carbon tax and rebate program. Notice the word reinforce. Mm, Yes, this is basically upholding the the liberal platform i mean this is it's already we're starting off from a position of oh the people in power the party in power they already have what they have and we just want to reinforce that yeah there's nothing new or radical or exciting there's no nothing transformational transformational about this um 
I can't help but think that, that this is just really a, another type of tax giveaway for corporations. Um, it'll be a, ta- a way to, to essentially tax the working class and you know, a way in which corporations are able to find loopholes. That's just what I interpret it as. Or, you know, like as you said, there's really not much a distinction between the liberals and, uh, and the, you know, this type of Green Party. Like, think about the example of when Loblaws, Loblaws was given $12 million by the liberals to retrofit their fridges. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't really see how this reinforcement is much different, is much of a breakaway from the liberals. Yeah, and at the same time, this also turns people off from the idea of green policy because they continue thinking, oh, green policies are simply going to hurt the average individual. Meanwhile, they're giveaways to companies like Loblaws. So if you continue to reinforce, using their language, continue to reinforce that this is what a green economy looks like, then you are going to continue to be unable to get people on board for uh, the future when it comes to uh, renewable energies. Yeah. And uh, the next major point is she wants to put a carbon tax on imports. So we were watching uh, the CBC coverage last night, and I, I found this very interesting when, uh, I forget who, who mentioned this on like the CBC, but they were basically saying how this is something that Joe Biden also wants to do, which is, mm-hmm. okay, interesting. Like, uh, you know, Joe Biden wants to like put a carbon tax on imports, but there you go. Like that's that's like the problem with yeah. this. Like, so Canada's putting at- a tax import. The United States is putting a tax import. Our greatest trade par- trading partner is like. So at least when it comes to this issue, we're looking at, at at Joe Biden as the new Green Party leader. Like that's that's kind of where we're sitting at right now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like policy. like it seems like it's supposed to be like a positive protectionist policy, but like if the United States th- does this, like. Like, what's, who's going to stop stop them from doing it to Canada? I just, I don't see carbon tax taxes on imports as a way to, uh, you know, spur economic growth. And I don't think, I, I just generally don't think, don't think when it comes to like taxes or like sin taxes, um, they're just ultimately very short-sighted and can be full of loopholes. Um, you're better off taxing corporations as a whole. Um, then allowing them to find loopholes in the system and just kind of prioritizing, you know, tax benefits for your your uh, party's donors. Yeah, like, it's and, just, that's and what uh, it seems to me. tax havens, of course, being a major part of that, like it, ensuring that these companies are not putting their money in offshore tax havens or, or these individuals that exactly. are that are uh, the wealthiest in, in Canada. Yeah. And uh, then the, the third major point that uh, her green economy looks at is uh, major green investments. So uh, this is very heavily focused on private companies retrofitting buildings. And I just, I, I obviously have a lot of problems with this, but this is, this is specifically from her website. Uh, quote, for Canada private retro, uh, for, for Canada's private retrofit market to develop more rapidly, there are calls for the federal government to create an ambitious and clear framework for increasing energy and emissions performance. And she continues to say mm-hmm. where the market also becomes a key partner in transforming Canada's built environment. Yeah. So uh, instead of having like a nationalized Green New Deal program, like we have this this uh, partnership with with uh, corporations and mm-hmm. you know allowing the market to to do its thing. Yeah. And if you want to know what eco capitalism is, this paragraph is a perfect example of it. I mean, again, you, you quoting here from her website: private retrofit market, 
and then where the market also becomes a key partner in transforming Canada's built environment. Again, this is eco-capitalism. This is what they've been trying to do for years and years and years, has not worked. Yet here they are continuing to prop up or, or uh, propping up this candidate to become the leader, now the leader, the exact same strategy they have used for decades. And they're expecting a different result. So, I mean, just to be clear about uh, Enemy Paul's uh, win here as the leader, it was propped up by Elizabeth May, the former leader of the Green Party. So it's not like, you know, she just won because she was great and she won people over. No, no, it's, she was propped up by the party, by, by, by the, the party apparatus, by the, the leadership within the party. They were purposely trying to make her the leader. And Dimitri Lascaris came in second. He was the eco-socialist. He was the one that had real on-the-ground support, the one that was, that was uh, getting new Green Party uh, members to sign up. And he came so close, but was ultimately defeated by the person who was propped up by the Green Party leadership. Yeah, so ultimately, if you're on the left, you care about eco-socialism, workers' rights, or foreign policy, this is not your candidate. Um, however, she is someone that checks off a lot of diversity boxes. She also talks about foreign policy. <laughs> now, this is, uh, or I should say she, she has trouble discussing foreign policy. So Canadians for Justice and Peace in the Middle East had an important thread on her foreign policy, saying, quote, during the foreign policy debate, Annamie Paul, quote unquote, passed on every lightning round question on important issues such as NATO, the Lima Group, F-35s, and more. Leaders are supposed to answer questions and engage in dialogue, not stay silent. So I actually, uh, we both watched this debate, and it was crazy. <laughs> to see question after question be posed, and she literally would pass on most of the questions. It was insane. How can you run for the leadership of a party and not tell people what you support? So to give you one example, uh, here's what she has to say on uh, Israel-Palestine. Uh, with respect to, to Palestine, you know, I, as I said, I've worked uh, for many years um, you know, to, to combat, uh, coordinate action at a global level uh, to combat uh, deadly conflict. I've worked at the International Criminal Court uh, to, to punish, to identify, investigate, and punish uh, the greatest um, war criminals of our time. And so I, I come to this from that perspective, the perspective of a human rights defender. Uh, first, I, I should say that uh, I support existing Green Party policy. I do not believe that uh, Dimitri is characterizing the policy uh, correctly um, in the way that he, that he stated it, but I support the resolution that was passed in 2016. The thing we always have to keep in mind is that civilians, those of us who have worked in deadly conflict in combating it, civilians caught up in deadly conflict want it to end as quickly as possible even if that involves compromise. And that is the, the, what, the role they want the international community to pay. And you are not going to, in most instances, produce um, a resolution to deadly conflict through overwhelming force. You have to explore all the options and it has to be bespoke. It has to be case by case, and it has to be the thing that is going to get you from con deadly conflict to peace as quickly as possible. The, you know, the jury's in on that, the comparative evidence is clear, that is dialogue. And that is the best thing that a country like Canada, in terms of this conflict and the role we can play, it is the very best thing that we can do, is to encourage the parties to return to the negotiation table and where necessary, exert pressure on them to do that.
Have you ever heard of a bigger non-answer than that? I mean, <laughs> what was that? That was saying absolutely nothing. Wow, dialogue, really, you need dialogue, okay. Yeah, it's not like that's wow. been done for like decades. <laughs> Incredible leadership here. Let we, you know what we need? We need dialogue. Oh my God. So obviously here, purposely not taking a position on uh, the Israel-Palestine conflict. And in addition to that clip, Canadians for Justice and Peace in the Middle East tweeted out, Enemy Paul is one of only two candidates who refused to endorse the MP pledge to oppose Israeli annexation, which was signed by all three Green MPs. She refused to respond to our questionnaire. She has no foreign policy on her website. Michael Bucher on Twitter posted Miriam Haddad's question to Paul on the coup in Bolivia. And this is also one that's going to make you laugh. Amy, uh, when you were uh, the Green Party of Canada's foreign affairs critic, uh, you did not condemn the, the coup against Evo Morales, an indigenous elected leader in Bolivia. I was wondering, how do you justify talking about letting indigenous communities take their own decisions and decolonization and then endorse colonialism or imperialism in another country? Thank you. Thanks. That's a lot of very incendiary language there. Um, you know, I'm, as I said, I'm, a, I'm an international human rights lawyer. I've worked in conflict prevention. My husband actually worked in the office of the first Indigenous Vice President of Bolivia. And uh, he accompanied Evo Morales on a trip and uh, interviewed him while he was there. So I can tell you, no one is a bigger supporter of the rights of Indigenous peoples in Bolivia than I am. Uh, but I'm also someone who is a foreign policy expert and I'm nuanced. And uh, I can tell you that I go to excellent sources for information. Um, I want to see a, uh, an election as soon as possible. I want to make sure that it's free and fair. And let's try to be a little more careful with our language. So for a foreign policy expert that has a nuanced position on these issues, she is unable to give a clear answer on anything dealing with foreign policy, leading us to believe she obviously does not have a more forward-thinking, left-wing, humane foreign policy. Now, Enemy Paul's husband worked for Victor Hugo Cardenas, who is currently a minister in the coup government in Bolivia. Yeah, there there is uh, no left uh, policies when it comes to her foreign policy. No wonder she had no foreign policy information on her website. Um, so... Uh, obviously, that's why, you know, that's why I think there's just such a, a demand for a foreign policy, a green leftist foreign policy candidate, because it's it's really totally absent in Canadian politics as a whole. Um, but I wanted to kind of circle back to uh, like green capitalism and and, uh, you know, why like what is this concept like what is green capitalism, you know, or eco capitalism or sometimes called like blue greens and it's kind of the heart of the problem with the majority of the Green Party candidates and um, why this division is so strong. Um, so eco-capitalists essentially view um, capital as existing in nature, sort of like natural capital. Like this is just very neoclassical. This is very a uh, neoclassical view of uh, Milton Friedman's sort of like free hand of the market, sort of like this natural thing. But markets are not natural. And this is kind of like this weird fusion with like 
eco capitalism and like the environment and mm -hmm. naturalizing the marketplace where climate change is just as natural as capitalism is it's like <laughs> just yeah. as climate change you know exists because of uh, of various forces well capitalism that that's just it's just natural capitalism is natural so let's meld the two together exactly it's yeah, it's it contradicts each, each other in so many ways. And um, this natural view of the market, they believe is um, they can they can use a lot of like market based policy instruments uh, like a carbon tax uh, to resolve environmental problems um, or individual action to solve these problems. And uh, just like neoclassical economists kind of viewed, you know, their own sort of instruments like uh, lowering or raising interest rates to resolve the economy like capitalists or eco-capitalists believe that you can use certain policy instruments to drive the market and in many ways this this leads to like crisis this this is really a result of crisis capitalism there's like lots of theories on like crisis and crisis theory i won't really get into it but i would recommend uh looking up marx's theory of economic crisis this is something you can look up on youtube for uh, a more thorough explanation of of why crisis is beneficial to capitalism and also ultimately puts workers in sort of these competitive positions um, where they have to accept lower wages um, to benefit corporations and ultimately increase surplus. Um, I kind of butchered that, but like, you know, look into it if that's something you're more no, interested in. That's exactly right. I mean, it, it is it is this idea that uh, this 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 true idea that these corporations look for any way they can to benefit, to make as much money as possible. So when there is a crisis, it is a perfect opportunity for them to pounce and, again, ensure that the people that benefit are not the workers, are not the people as a whole, but the capital owners, the, one, the ones that actually run the show when it comes to these corporations. So, again, it is the same approach that the Green Party is taking when it comes to solving the climate crisis. It, it essentially is crisis capitalism. Yeah. And yeah, if you just look at sort of Marx's theory, it, it's essentially like crisis and capital capital, like just complement each other. Um, and I really wanted to look in a little bit more into this idea of eco capitalism. And I found a lot of really problematic things um, that you know, come from like the roots of eco-capitalism. Um, so in the 1960s, the late 1960s, there were a lot of, you know, a lot of people that were looking at the environment as like this, you know, existential crisis, kind of like today. But they they link it to a lot of, lot of things that are problematic, one of them being like human overpopulation, this sort of Malthusian perspective. Um, but like they also argued against social welfare programs because parents were overbearing children i'm um, not to say that this is like an attitude of like the green party today of canada but like this is this is where eco-capitalism comes from like this this priority of profit over people um mm -hmm. and it's not only a it, it's it's a it's a much more individualistic view uh, exactly. as opposed to looking at it as how we can change as a society while ensuring that we are also all protected as a society, and we, we can all grow together and, and move together in this transition. It, it instead takes a more individualistic approach. Yeah, and just to like combat, like I've definitely heard even people on the left um, kind of bring up this view of like overpopulation. It's, it's obviously problematic for so many reasons because the, 
the attitudes are obviously directed towards countries in the global south um and you know in countries in like canada for instance we actually have a population like issue in terms of we don't have a big enough population um most millennials i know are not choosing to have children because it's you know because of the cost issue and we live in the global north like it's just like to have these uh welfare programs like even though we do have more more uh more of a social safety net than the united states does people are still not having kids Mm -hmm. um another main point of eco-capitalism that kind of is is the um like in addition to to like market mechanisms is kind of this idea of ethical consumerism so this views like consumers not just as like not just producers um consumers should take responsibility for the environmental restoration via green technology green taxes eco shopping etc so we want to like shop our way to sustainability (laughs) um and and you see this like everywhere like you see this you see this when you go into fast fashion stores like h&m or zara making sustainability products um which like they still have obvious like labor issues quote unquote sustainability because you, you did the air quotes there but you didn't say it yeah <laughs> I mean, sorry the quote unquote sustainability <laughs> yeah uh products but yeah. yeah which are obviously still problematic yeah and it just like ultimately to have like the most environmental uh quote unquote sustainable products um like they're going to cost more and taxing these products are just really a tax on the poor like that's what this is yeah um so, and just other things like advocating veganism, which I strongly advocate. Um, but like, I, I don't think that this is going to be the way in which you can uh, uh, resolve the climate crisis. I forget which Green Party member said this, but I think he uh, was like... There was one of the debates yeah. where somebody said something like that. It's just, or it's, I saw it on Twitter. I don't know. But it's, it's not... The, the idea, again, that individual action is going to do what is necessary. No. Now, now listen, of course... Yes, nothing against it. Um, as as Mary has discussed, she is uh, she's vegan or sometimes vegan. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely not now. I'm pregnant, so <laughs> yeah, I'm not but, sure um, doing that right now. But again, it, so there's nothing against you know ensuring that that we are taking some steps like this. But but we can't look at them like as a party, as a political party. A political party cannot look at this as the way forward. Now, of course, the Green Party has you know. Uh, some some policies that are attempting to, to to do you know larger changes, but they're nothing to what is actually necessary when it comes to transforming our uh, our system off of fossil fuels and ensuring that people are taken care of in the process, and we are investing into people as opposed to uh, ensuring or or giving the reins up to corporations to take care of it. Yeah, there is no like the, there is nothing equivalent in this plat like in. Anime Paul's platform that is equivalent to, you know, AOC's Green New Deal in the yeah. United States. There is nothing comparable. And that's that's really the problem. Like this is just eco capitalism to like this is a hundred percent eco capitalism. So, so do you think that uh, Paul has even the slightest chance of like winning her own seat? Yeah, so this is the the part if you're not Canadian, if you don't understand the process, just a quick explanation. Uh, uh, explanation. So she has the party leadership, but she does not have a seat in parliament. So this was also similar to NDP leader Jagmeet Singh, 
who when he won leadership, he also did not have a seat, but then he ran in a by-election in BC and won a seat, so he's now sitting in Parliament. But with the Green Party, it's a little tougher. So we're talking about a party that only has three seats nationally, and Anime Paul is running in Toronto Centre. Now, she's run in Toronto Centre before. Let me. Uh, so this is according to her website when she ran in 2019 for Toronto Centre against Bill Morneau. Bill Morneau being the, um, the uh, formerly in Trudeau's government. Now he's he has uh, uh, been essentially pushed out. But uh, her website says, quote, We had the second best green result in the greater Toronto area, nearly tripling the green vote in our riding. I was really proud of the ways in which my campaign team was able to support other green candidates and ridings throughout the city. Now, reading that, you think, well, okay, she did really good. The second best green result in the greater Toronto area. It must be fantastic, right? Well, here are the actual numbers in 2019. Bill Morneau, the Liberals, 31,271 votes. Brian Chang of the NDP, 12,124 votes. Ryan Lester of the Conservative Party, 6,613 votes, and Anime Paul in fourth, 3,851 votes for the Greens. Wow. Yeah. Um, this, I mean, looking, <laughs> again, this is the way you, you can massage stats. Oh, the second best Green result in the greater Toronto area. Sounds fantastic. Well, guess what? The Greens don't do very well in the greater Toronto area. So, and this, by the way, again, the second best result, not even the first best. So the second best result is fourth place with 3,000 votes, where the winner of that seat got 31,000 votes. Now, there is a by-election. So this by-election that she'll be running in is on October 26th. The Greens are requesting that the NDP not run a candidate in her district. Uh, this is in response to how um, when Jagmeet Singh ran for his seat in BC, the uh, Greens stepped down. Uh, to sort of consolidate the vote uh, around Singh. But it wasn't even necessarily because of that. I believe that, I forget the actual phrasing, but it was, uh, I think they, they called it the, the leadership courtesy. So having a party leader be able to run in a riding and just, you know, be the MP for that riding uh, so they can have the leader in parliament. That's kind of the idea behind it. So the Greens did do that for Singh, but um, <laughs> it's likely not going to be uh, the same result uh for the NDP doing it for the Greens. So Singh congratulated Chang uh, for becoming the NDP candidate on Twitter the day, the very day Paul won the nomination. And uh, Marcy Ian, former CTV journalist, is taking over for Bill Morneau's liberal spot. And she is the heavy favorite. We're talking about somebody who is well-known in the city. Again, CTV journalist on television. People know Marcy Len, or sorry, Marcy Ian. Um, so... Very likely, again, considering this is a, a solid liberal seat, I, it's yeah. going to be uh, it's going to be really tough for Anime Paul to win this. Considering uh, Brian Chang was f like almost four times like received four times the amount of votes, I just can't imagine the NDP like stepping down from this. Like this is just this is a horrible strategy. Like there is no this is this is another problem a lot of people have with the Green Party. Horrible strategy? Is yeah, exactly. <laughs> there is no strategy. Doing and the I exact will... same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. And look this is it Jugmeet Singh ran in a riding in BC that was already heavily favored for the NDP. Um it was not, you know, Toronto Center. This we're talking about a, a place in BC where uh, there's a, a little 
a little less densely populated, let's say, than than Toronto. Um, he had he always had a good shot at winning that riding. Annemie Paul is just, is just sort of trying to get the seat handed to her here. I mean, if she actually wanted to be the Green leader sitting in Parliament, then she would run somewhere, maybe like Guelph, where they have a uh, Green Party leader uh, uh, provincially in, in Guelph. She may have a chance there if she ran in Guelph. But no, she can't just move, you know, an hour and run in Guelph. She, she's going for Toronto Centre again. And look, there is the potential, maybe, that because she is a leader, that's going to have more people than usual pay attention to the yeah. by-election and vote because of that. But people living in Toronto Centre are, I imagine, fairly well off. We're talking about, you know, million-dollar condos. Um, this some is, this people is, that elected Bill Morneau. Toronto is such an expensive city to live in. This is the most expensive area, probably one of the most expensive areas in the city, if not in the country, to live in. Like there is. Well, then again, we could also say, well, I mean, if she's running as a conservative when it comes to some of these economic issues, <laughs> that maybe she will, maybe she will, in fact, appeal go, to these conservative voters, these more liberal voters. You're going to go for the liberals. You're going to go for the real thing. Like you're, you're going to go for. Like the actual neoliberal, like yeah, yeah. That, like why instead would of, you go for going neoliberal for, light? Yeah, instead of going for neoliberal light or, or diet neoliberal, you're gonna go for the real one, and that's and that's gonna be Marcy Ian. I'm I, gonna say she probably has almost no shot, but, uh, I mean, at least she's. Uh, there's no. <laughs> I'm chance. trying to find a positive here for for her. Like she she's I, she's I, willing I to get into the ring to have a real fight like she's going straight to fighting Mike Tyson she's not even going to bother going up the ranks like this is just going right for the title fight all right uh good luck to you but um I I I don't really know how this happens yeah this just shows me she like the the greens have no strategy they're not interested in winning and that's bottom line like a problem I have with the green party um like it it seems like a, a pattern with the green party but um yeah, like uh, if you were in the Toronto Center, um, would you vote? Like, who would you vote for in the in this by election that's coming up in like a couple weeks? Uh, look, I am riding low right now. I guess that's the opposite of riding high off of the um, the Green leadership result. I would vote NDP. Uh, that's me. Uh, they have the potential here, um, as or at least I should say, more of a potential. As Brian Chang came in second last time, he uh, is running again. Somebody who is, you know, more well known. So, I think um, that's where my vote would go is 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 to the NDP. Yeah, I I would vote strategically. I would not vote for the Liberals. I would vote for the the furthest left candidate that has a shot, and that looks like Brian Chang has more, much more, four times greater of a shot than Annami Paul. Maybe her her recognition will go up, but I just, I don't, uh, I would not see myself voting for a diet neoliberal when I can vote for at least a social democratic candidate. Well, uh, what can we learn? <laughs> what can we learn from this result in the uh, Green Party leadership race? Um, I think one of the things that we can learn is it's it's really difficult, especially when, you know, this is such a small party, right? Um, and there was like no real po- polling that kind of, you know, was accurate or something that we could reference. So it was really difficult to know who the front runners were. Um, 
when it comes to centrist candidates, fundraising numbers are supposedly the better indicator of who is going to be leading, um, which we should have realized was going to be Paul. Um, At the same time, though, I mean, Lascaris had, a, had, I believe, so my understanding was before, uh, at least leading up to the result, that Lascaris actually was leading in individual donors. Yeah. At least, at least at the beginning of the month, um, it, possible it could have changed later on, but um, so that's a good indicator of of who's leading. I mean, th- this was th- th- there was sort of this known quantity in, in terms of who would be the, the top two. So, Anime Paul and Lascaris were looked at as the top two because of the fundraising numbers. But um, again, Anime Paul having the support of the party leadership allowed her to get a lot of the vote that, you know, may have supported Elizabeth May in the past. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Lascaris was almost not even recognized by leadership or Elizabeth May uh, leading up to the result. Yeah. It, yeah. Whoever the candidate is that has like the largest number of donors and specifically if it's in like smaller quantities or smaller dollar donations, it usually indicates who's like the strongest representative for the left, um, as opposed to like who has like the most fundraising money. But like I just looking back at at this, it was just strangely like eerily similar to the US Democratic primary when there was kind of like no clear front runner. Um, And I couldn't help but like think of this kind of like, you know, how the established establishment candidates were kind of like all there and the left doesn't really know where to shoot because like I, I almost felt that way it was like oh yeah there's three sort of like eco-socialist candidates and then like the rest of them are neoliberals but I don't know who to mm-hmm. attack like I don't like like we on the left don't really know where energy should be you know yeah. put towards and like when we think about you know what happened with like Biden and Sanders you know based on the outcomes with like New Hampshire or I or Iowa during the primary it could have been Buttigieg so it's it was it was kind of like that situation where we don't really know because we're kind of like blind going into this to be fair though th- this was a ranked ballot so it was mm-hmm. a little different than that yeah. just in, just in terms of a lot of the vote that ended up going to, say, um, Miriam Haddad, who was not another eco-socialist, or Amita Kuttner, another eco-socialist, if they were f- first on the ballot for whoever, whoever voted for those people, very likely Lascaris was either second or third. So a lot of their vote ended up going to Lascaris by the end. But because I, I really think it's it's largely because Anime Paul had the, the biggest push from the party leadership that that is the very reason that that she has become leader yeah i guess it's just kind of like where we should have put our focus to because i feel like like that's one thing we need to learn on the left like who is our who are like our greatest enemies like for bernie like it was kind of like okay joe biden but like also defeating warren because she's our greatest competition like for Lascaris or like the eco-socialists it it was kind of like we don't really know like we don't we like the fundraising numbers weren't published or like they weren't really advertised I guess um and uh and I just think uh you know we can't expect like like I would never expect the eco-socialists to start throwing mud at Paul like I just wouldn't but like like we do have, you know, we are online people and like the internet is very prevalent. And uh, I think uh, we should have looked into that. Like, frankly, like these, specifically each of these, um, each of these candidates and kind of like formulated a strategy in which we could, could have. Uh, well, the thing is some people did, and this is part of the problem is, you know, you have half the, 
the party membership, they're not really eco-socialist, or at least I should say they're not engaged online to be educated enough to maybe become eco-socialist. So they're sort of just listening to what Elizabeth May, the mm-hmm. leader, is telling them. Yeah. Um, so, but but there were there were groups like Justice Greens in Canada who were fighting to have the vote, uh, the ranked ballot as uh, Demetrius Garris first, Mariam Haddad second, and Amina Kutner third, mm-hmm. which is exactly how, how I voted uh, yeah. on the ranked ballot. And I think that's great. Uh, honestly, I think groups yeah, like... they did I, a good job. I think they, they're, the, they're a big part of the reason that Dimitri did as well as he did. And, you know, the result, even though Dimitri lost, he only lost by a couple thousand votes. And a lot of people, uh, judging by the reaction in the media especially, they were surprised at mm-hmm. how much support... Uh, an eco-socialist got. Mm-hmm. So this is something that even moving forward, the party's going to have to answer for. Because it is very similar, as Mary said, to the Democratic primary in a way. Because, you know, Joe Biden didn't win because of policy. Bernie Sanders was popular because of policy. Same thing here. Enemy Paul didn't win because of policy. But Dimitri Lascaris was very popular because of policy. Enemy Paul won because of the support within the party, much like Joe Biden. And really, I mean, Joe Biden also had this um, people wanted a, a desire, a, a return to normal, and they, they felt that from Joe Biden. But again, basically, policy was not the deciding factor in enemy Paul's win. Mm-hmm. So when we realize that, or if the if the party realizes that, then they know that they have to do something to actually reach out to many of those new members that they now have because of members or because mm-hmm. of candidates like Lascaris, like Miriam Haddad, like Amita Kuttner. And if they fail to reach out to those voters, well, guess what? you're going to have the exact same result the Green Party has had for 30 years. Yeah. And I just think Lascaris and, like, just the other eco-socialist, you know, campaigners, like, they did such an amazing job. And really just to get this message out there, like, hearing eco-socialism, like, repeated on CBC was, like, what? Like, I can't (laughs) believe I'm I'm hearing this. Like, I can't believe I'm hearing, like, let's cancel NATO. Like, Let's cancel the RCMB, RCMP. Like, I just, it was, they did, like, well, they really... Well, not cancel, but defund, but yes. Or defunded. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um, but you know what I mean. Like, it's just, like, they really brought policy to the forefront, which was so rare. Like, like when we were watching CBC, it was all, like, they only could, like, bring up identity when it came to, like, the other, like, oh neoliberal God. It got so, It got so bad. What was that? There was one candidate they brought up, and it was something like, she would be the first... A candidate to have lived on a permafrost mountain. It was something yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like they are really stretching the identity stuff super thin. Yeah. Um, but then when it gets to Dimitri Lascaris, they got to mention eco socialist. They have mm-hmm. to mention um, his uh, his wealth tax. Uh, the uh, yeah uh, wealth canceling cap. billionaires. Yeah, canceling billions uh, are, are billionaires having a wealth cap of five hundred million. So. This is this this is exactly why we're so disappointed because Dimitri Lascaris would have been uh, essential into moving the Overton window to the left. Like yeah. we're under no illusions yeah. that, that the Green Party would have formed government in you know yeah. in, in a couple of years. But yeah. the idea here is that it would have moved the conversation towards a uh, towards one that is more just, more humane, more based in fact, and that's what Dimitri Lascaris brand uh, uh, brung, especially when it came to foreign policy. The discussion on foreign, uh, foreign policy in Canada mm-hmm. is so narrow, it is unbelievable. And as well, we've got to say, the NDP is not great either. And mostly it's the NDP leadership. You have members like Nikki Ashton who are solid yep. when it comes to these issues. She, she's out on Twitter. She's she's calling out. Uh, I believe she called out the Oblivia coup, but yep. she's always on. Um, she's always very engaged in what's going on in, in, in that sense. Yep. But um, 
we could have had that as a leader of a major party in Canada. And yeah, that's, that's why it's so disappointing. Yeah, exactly. That's totally it. Like the whole whole point of the like, you know, getting an eco-socialist as a leader, as you know, Dimitri was so close to winning, um, is to change the conversation and to really, um, you know, get kind of like that knowledge out there because really knowledge is power. Like we need to on the left be aware of, you know, how how much of a bias against socialism or eco-socialism, you know, the establishment has and how mm -hmm. prevalent neoliberalism is in, you know, Canadian news, Canadian government, um, yeah, it's we saw a lot of that during the CBC coverage as well when I mean they were talking about How enemy Paul oh well she would have the best strategy of going after more, more voters because she's more centrist like just this built-in assumption mm -hmm. That because she is more conservative on on these issues that she would have a bigger base to pull from which is ridiculous If it hasn't worked for the past 20 years, why would it work all of a sudden now? Like yeah. this, but, but they're stuck in this mindset that they just can't even imagine that a left wing platform would be successful. They're completely ignoring all the people that don't normally vote are not largely engaged in the system, especially young voters. So when you ignore that and just assume that, oh, well, of course, being in the center is going to work when it's the same failed strategy over the past 20 years. Like it, it shows you how biased the media is yeah. when it comes to covering these issues. Yeah, the major change this time, this election, was you had three eco-socialists on the ballot. Um, and this is, which is like already extremely radical, like of a thing to happen in Canadian politics. Um, but like what happened as a result of that, their membership doubled. Like, like there's an obvious relationship between like the membership increasing versus the like number of like pol policy positions and you know when when foreign policy is brought to the table when left foreign policy is you know discussed um you know like and, and dimitri also had such a great campaign like across the country like as opposed to you know just getting out there on social media in addition to doing that um like he he had his conversations on benches series where he was you know, despite this like COVID crisis we're going through, like he was meeting with people. And I, I think also that's an important, important, uh, you know, credit where credit's due to oh, his yeah. campaign. Like he, he, he ran a great campaign. I mean, all things considered with the party apparatus almost completely ignoring him. Um, I believe at the beginning of the race, they tried to block him from running. Uh, he eventually was able, thanks to backlash, to be able to run for uh, leadership. But yeah, if you want to, I mean... His videos are all over the internet. You can also check out my interview with him. I interviewed him on the show. The uh, audio version is also available in in the podcast mm -hmm. feed, so you could you could find that. And yeah. he's a fantastic fantastic candidate, and we're going to continue following him. Uh, following him, hopefully, um, he I, I know he'll stay engaged in politics, but I'm I'm looking forward to seeing what he does. Yeah, and uh, I hope he uh, stays engaged in a way that is uh, public facing, so he can continue mm -hmm. to uh, push the conversation to the place where it should be. Yeah, definitely. And uh, so, so what do you think this this means? Like this loss in terms of like you know the left, like the green greens losing the left. Like, what does this mean for the NDP? Like, how's this going to affect them? Ultimately, I don't see much change happening. Um, this is sort of the continuation of Elizabeth May. Uh, mm -hmm. The only way it could potentially hurt the NDP or the Liberals is that enemy Paul is the first black woman to be a leader of a major party in Canada. And as much as we 
I mean, we here understand that the importance of the underlying policy and platform, which we're actually fighting for, is the most important thing. The reality is, you know, Trudeau and his uh, his vocal and feeble attempts to uh, be somebody who is representing, you know, the the quote unquote underclass, but really just through uh, flowery language. I mean, someone like Enemy Paul has the ability to grab some of those voters simply because she is the first black uh, woman leading a party. So, look, I do think it's worth noting that. I think that that is an accomplishment, of course. But ultimately, a lot of these parties have their built-in bases for various reasons. And to have somebody who is essentially just Elizabeth May uh, on paper, it's going to be really tough for the Greens, I think, to uh, grow their support. And especially if their leader can't win a seat. I mean, again, Toronto Centre is going to be tough. Yeah. So if the leader is not even in Parliament, I'm not sure how well they're really going to do. And uh, yeah, I'm not sure this will really hurt the NDP too much. Yeah, I don't think it's going to hurt the NDP too too much. I think like actually, uh, you know, I, I've seen like some people argue that like, yeah, Dimitri Lascaris win would be a problem for the NDP because then it actually you know, puts like challenges their, you know, lefty credentials. And I actually think this is, yeah, this is going to seep into like the liberal vote. I don't know how much though, but it, it, it could be like a, you know, something that could happen. But I think the liberals are doing really well in terms of polling. Um, so I, yeah. I, like there's, it's almost like you, there's little distinction between like an eco-capitalist Green Party and the Liberals when it comes to economic and foreign policy. So people are just going to pick the party that they know best. And and quite honestly, a big reason for uh, the Liberals doing so well right now is, well, one, because of the NDP and pushing exactly. and pushing the, the Liberals to the left and mm-hmm. getting them to support something like the CERB, the two grand a month that Canadians have yeah. been able to uh, have Credit if they've been the impacted by, by, by COVID-19. Um, but also because of Trump, uh, you know, Canadians look south and they see a complete disaster. Mm-hmm. Uh, the numbers in the U.S. are horrible compared to other countries, including Canada. We're doing much yeah. better than, than the uh, Americans are. So Canadians think, hey, that's good enough. I mean, p- uh, <laughs> this is the thing a lot of the time when it comes to politics in Canada. Because we have health care, because we have somewhat of a competent welfare state though it does not go far enough and it has Definitely it actually being expanded because of um how the crb has helped people but because of these things it there's there's less of an urgency for let's say you know uh massive change in the country when it comes to older voters now when it comes to the young people i think it almost mirrors i would say exactly what we're seeing with with gen z in the u.s um younger canadians do want to see uh a more uh, eco-socialist uh, future and they will support a party that that pushes those sorts of policies forward those sorts of issues that that address yeah. wealth inequality in a real way like a serious wealth tax like a wealth cap um yeah the ndp yeah. needs to make a a serious appeal to like these eco-socialists because i think while you know they're they like they're, they have no party to go to now like there's nowhere for them to go they're either going to you know, sit this one out or, you know, maybe the NDP could 
could reach out and have some policies because I do think there is there there is this sort of assumption, kind of the way the liberals assume that like, oh, well, you have nowhere to go, so you have to vote for the liberals. The NDP assumption is, oh, well, you have nowhere to go now, so you're going to have to vote for us. But like the reality is people are just going to sit out like that's that's happened in the past. And you see there was a lot of excitement for these eco-socialist, uh, you know, um, uh, candidates. candidates this time around. So there, there is a desire for people to bring up like green, like a, a real kind of green new deal that is focused on like socialist, nationalist, uh, not sorry, I don't want to say the word nationalist, like, an, like a national program is what I meant to say. Yeah. And, um, and, uh, and they also need to really the NDP 100% needs to prioritize a left foreign policy because this is this to me is such it, it's so rooted in um you know eco-socialism like the concern for the planet but the concern for the global south the concern for workers in the global south like the climate refugee crisis these are all things that a lot of the a lot of eco-socialist voters you know consider and while it may not directly impact us like that's kind of the attitude i saw someone on twitter like you know say oh like you know who cares about bolivia or yeah. i had someone tweet at me where it was like oh bolivia is such a marginal issue and it's like that's that's not the point like whether whether you are directly affected by canada's foreign policy whether you are directly affected by imperialism people are seeing how uh these po like these foreign policy um uh, missteps by the liberals, by the conservatives, have like massive impact impacts on the global south, and yeah, and it also just shows a failure overall. Mm -hmm. And you know, of course, Bolivia is one example, one of many examples of these foreign policy failures. So it 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 is an example of a uh, of a larger issue that again a, applies to. Canadian politics as a whole, our discussion on foreign policy, especially incredibly narrow. And it is something that I hope people like uh, our MPs like Nikki Ashton will continue yeah. to uh, call out and yeah, she's, and she make, uh, you know, make them into public discussions. But yeah, that's my hope that we can kind of like as eco-socialists or as people that are left on foreign policy can really bring the like criticize the NDP, but from like a you know, a, a point of like, we need to do better, like not like, oh, you know, F the NDP, like, I, I want the NDP to do better. I want to vote for a party like I want, I want to vote for an NDP that like has good foreign policy. I want to vote for a party that wants like a really solid eco socialist Green New Deal. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, uh, this was our second episode. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, we will try to make this maybe like a, a, a monthly thing uh, for now, but we'll see. Um, let us know your thoughts. Uh, send me tweets. Um, YouTube comments are going to be hard for me to find, but if you send me tweets of your thoughts on this episode, or uh, if you're on uh, Patreon, if you're a patron, then reply to the, uh, the message about the podcast. Let me know what, what you think. And also, speaking of Patreon... Uh, patreon.com slash the rational national that's how you can help support the show keep this work going and uh thanks again thanks for listening yeah and if there's any sort of canadian or i don't know just any kind of topics that you like anyone wants to have covered we're kind of always like looking at what would be a really 
good podcast topic. Yeah, send suggestions in. Let us know what you want to see. And uh, thanks, Mary. Yeah, thanks for having me. When you have rational national priorities...